C.S. Lewis once wrote that if you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this life can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. And the amazing part about that is that we actually get a taste of that heavenly world in the local church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that the church is a place where the presence of God dwells on earth. So if you think about it, the church is like a little Garden of Eden in its community. It's a place where you can encounter the living God through Jesus. It's a place that puts on display the fact that Jesus has reopened the gates of Eden for you to find and follow your Creator. And that's the kind of church that Kaylee and I have been called to start on the north side of Des Moines. And the first way we plan to do this is through serving our neighbors. As a church, we're going to make Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor a part of our everyday life. It's going to be who we are. Whether someone steps foot in our church or not, we want to be a life-giving garden in this community by blessing them every chance that we get. Because we believe, and we've already been praying and fasting, that waves of revival would sweep through entire neighborhoods through simply loving your neighbor like Jesus would. The second way is through serving our neglected. In Mark 9:37, Jesus says, anyone who welcomes a little child on my behalf welcomes me. And by little child, Jesus is referring to the childlike in our society. So those who are the outcasts, the dependent, the poor, the weak, the homeless, the fatherless, the refugee, or what we've been calling the neglected. It doesn't take long for you to drive around and notice that on the north side, there are a lot of neglected people. But one of the clearest realities that you'll ever find in the Bible is that God's heart is knit to the neglected. And if that's true, then our hearts must be as well. And lastly, through serving what I've been calling our spiritual nomads. That is, those who are wandering in search of spiritual fulfillment but have nowhere to address their longings, mainly because they don't trust the church anymore. Well, we strongly believe that in a culture that's searching for spiritual fulfillment, we need to be the ones that they're searching with. And we actually believe that our examples found in Jesus. All over the Gospels, he gives us the examples of walking with people through their struggles as they're searching for spiritual fulfillment. And we just want to be a church that follows in Jesus' footsteps. At bottom, our desire in this church is to build a community that gives the spiritual nomad a place to feel at home while they search for spiritual fulfillment. It was Philip Yancey who said, Christians should work harder towards establishing colonies of the kingdom that point to our true home. All too often the church holds up a mirror reflecting back the society around it rather than a window revealing a different way. Our prayer is that this church would be a window into the very presence of God on the north side of Des Moines. Well, hey guys, how are you guys doing today? 
Very good to be here. I mean, you guys' music was amazing, by the way. You guys have an awesome team here in the setup on Sunday morning now, which is amazing. I'm blown away. Like, you guys are really, really blessed, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, like Adam said, my name is John Nemers, and I think I got a picture. This is actually an updated picture. We were missing a baby in the last picture because, yes, we are 28 years old, and we have five children. We have no idea what we're doing. You can pray for us. We are, we are swimming right now, and yeah, that is our family. My beautiful wife, Kaylee, is over here, and, uh, and we're really excited to, to be here and uh, preach God's word to you. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to just talk about the church plant. We really want to get into God's word because, you know, I like to say at the end of the day, who cares what I personally have to say? It's God's word that's really going to change your heart and your, and your mind and actually give you something to take home with you this week and, and change you. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm chapter 24, and that's where we're going to be. And uh, this psalm's really, really meaningful to me. And while you turn there, I want you to look at this picture that I have up here. Hopefully I'm not blocking it. It's a picture that um, if you're younger and you don't care about history, you, you probably don't think much of this picture. You probably see it for what it is. It's some sort of, some sort of festival parade. I don't know. There's someone important in the, uh, in the car there. Everyone's looking at him and there's lots of people there. But if you're a little bit older or if you're a fan of history, then you have a different reaction when you see this picture, don't you? When you see this picture, you think of 1963 when President John F. Kennedy was driving in Dallas, Texas, thousands of people surrounding him, and even more than that, watching on national television, and President Kennedy was shot right in the back of the head for the whole world to see, shocking the entire world, right? It was that generation's 9-11. It changed the, the course of history, a lot of historians would say. It, it shocked all of them, and all of them were left asking the question, why? Why did this have to happen? Everyone saw it. Why did this have to happen? Well, the same shock filled the Israelites in the context of the psalm that we're about to get into in Psalm 24. And the context is actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is right after King David had become king. He had just become king. And the Ark of the Covenant was not in the tabernacle. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, the Ark of the Covenant was this representation of the place where the presence of God dwelt on earth, okay? We, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard that a thousand times and you kind of just rush by it like it's no big deal. Like, think about this for a second. There's a living God, created everything, and his presence is residing on earth, on a single object. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it actually says, this is the place where the Lord Almighty is enthroned, Okay? So this, this ark is a big deal, okay? And David wants to bring this ark back into the tabernacle, back into the place where it's supposed to be. And so what he does is he, he gets 30,000 men, okay, 30,000, that's a lot of people, 
And, and, and he goes and he, and he goes and gets the ark and the whole time they are dancing, they're partying, they're, they're playing all of these instruments. It's a giant parade and he puts the ark of the covenant on, on this cart and he pulls it with these oxen. And if you've grown up in the church, maybe you know where I'm going with this story. And as, as the cart is being pulled, one of the oxen stumble. And the ark, you can picture it, it begins to wobble back and forth. And there was a man walking beside it, and his name was Uzzah. And Uzzah did what would have been natural for all of us at that point, right? Again, the presence of God is wobbling, and it's about to fall on the ground And so Uzzah reaches his hand out, touches the ark, steadies the ark, and what happens? He dies. Gets killed right there. Right in the spot. Shocking all 30,000 people who were at this parade. Shocking David. Leaving all of them asking that same question, why? What in the world is going on? And in case you're thinking this is, you know, just a one-off story in the Bible, it's not. This is actually what we would call a theme throughout the whole Bible. Think, think of, uh, remember the high priest, Israelite's very first high priest, and his two sons? His two sons went into the Holy of Holies, a place where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant would have been, and they went in in an unholy way, and what happened to them? Same thing. God killed them. Right there on the spot. And so these stories, they're in the Bible and they're there for us to ask the question, to get us to start thinking through, why is it? Why is it that when, when sinful humans enter into or draw near or touch the holy presence of God, disaster just starts to happen. Death starts to occur. It's a big question. And so here, here's a... Uh, Maybe this is kind of silly, but it helps me in my mind wrap my mind around this concept of why all of this happens, okay? So my wife is from Florida. She's born and raised there. She loves the sun. We go on vacation. If it's around anywhere warm, she'll just stay there for hours, okay? I'm Irish. I, uh, you know, I had a friend call me Casper the pastor one time. Okay, so, I mean, I don't mind the sun, but I can't stay out there long. Uh, but that's not my wife. My wife loves the sun. Now, when Kaylee says that she loves the sun, let me tell you what she doesn't mean. She doesn't mean, John, I would love for one day that we would just pick up our things and just move to the sun. That's pretty obvious, right? Because if we did, we would die, the glory of the sun would incinerate us. God's glory is like the sun in that way. His presence from a distance, he created us, he sustains us, he gives us life, but if we were to try, in our, in our sinful human state, if we were to try to enter into the presence of the holiness of God, as we are, it would go terribly wrong for us. We would die. And that was the case with Uzzah. The reason why Uzzah died is because his sin made approaching 
the holiness of God in impossibility. And that's true for every single one of us in this room. And so David, David has this reality in mind when he picks up his pen, so to speak, and starts to write down Psalm 24. And he really is trying to answer the question, how can I live at peace with my creator when he is so, so holy? How can I do this? And so let's go to Psalm 24. Let's read the first couple of verses here. This is a Psalm of David like we've been talking about. Verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, what's David talking about here? Because that's kind of a funny way of talking. We we, we hear these kind of languages all the time when we're reading our Bible. We just kind of don't think about it much. But that's a weird way of talking, right? He founded the earth. God founded the earth upon the seas and the rivers. So I have a, I, I get an email every single morning. It's called the 1440 Digest. And it, it's just like life history updates on current world events. Okay? And it'll say like, hey, uh, earthquakes in Turkey are happening. Um, uh, so many people have perished. Uh, sea images here. And, and when you see the sea images here part, it's usually like in blue. You know what I'm talking about? And so what happens when you click on one of those things, right? It just takes you back to, to this other website, these images, this video, whatever, whatever it's going to. The authors of the Bible write like that. When they're writing, they expect you to know what they are meditating on, and they'll often put these little, whatever, I like to call them flashbacks or foreshadows. Right? So they're, they're flashing back. And so David, when he says, and some of you have probably already picked up on it, when David says, for he founded it, God founded it, that is the earth and the world, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, you're supposed to click on it and it's supposed to flash you back to the opening pages of the Bible. It's, 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 it's the creation story. Specifically, the, the first three chapters and the first two verses say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without void, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So while David was pondering the death of Uzzah, he seemed to think that his answer would be found in the opening pages of Scripture, specifically the first three chapters. Now, I just want to point something out on a side note. Like, that's actually really profound. Think about this. I, I, I'm 28 years old, but I'm, I feel like I'm starting to learn in ministry that probably in this room, most, if not all of you, are hurting some way, some way shape, or form. You're, you're all hurting, whether it's your own sin that's causing the hurt or whether it's the world that's causing the hurt. You're probably coming in here limping, which is good. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where you can be vulnerable, confess your sin, and, and run back to God. But I want you to notice David, when he's in the midst of questioning God, that's what he's doing. He's questioning, what, what is going on here, God? He's in the midst of pain. He's in the midst of suffering. You notice what he does. He meditates on scripture. 
he opens up his Bible and he turns to the opening pages and says, God, I, I got to hear from you here. So I, I know that, that you guys are hurting. In fact, just last night talking to a couple, they're going through the ringer right now. And, and I got to open up God's word and say, Psalm 119, 24, let God's word, let his statutes be your counselors. That's what David's doing here. He's letting God's word be his counselors. This is why your pastor says, hey, let's sign up for counseling because this is, this is what David's doing. This is what your Bible authors have done. So David is doing that and he's meditating on the first three chapters of Genesis. And if you don't remember, maybe because you didn't grow up in the church, the Bible opens up by talking about how God created the earth and all of these little, these little images of himself called humans, right, Adam and Eve. And, and what he does is he creates this garden and he puts them in the garden. But unlike Uzzah, where, where they, he could not touch the presence of God without dying, Adam and Eve were able to live in the presence of God and, and not just live without dying, but they were able to flourish. And God said, hey, I want you to go fill the universe, go fill the world with more images of me, with more humans who understand their creator, who love their creator. And that's how I'm going to fill the world with my glory. But maybe you remember the rest of the story. It didn't take long, page three, for Adam and Eve to reject this, reject what God had offered to them, and they decided to do what was right in their own eyes. God told them, don't eat from this tree. They chose to rather eat from the tree, breaking this relationship that they had, this perfect relationship that God, they had with God and, and, and humanity. And, and Adam and Eve, they were exiled out of the presence of God. They were, they were left longing to get back in. And so David David has this picture in mind. I think I got a picture, yeah. I love this picture. Because this picture right here is a perfect picture of the gospel. This is what David's thinking about. Inside the gates of Eden, what you have is life. This is where the presence of God is. And because of our sin, we have been cast out. We cannot get back in. And if we try to get back in on our own efforts, the picture of the angel, the cherubim, guarding, is a picture of what it would be like if we tried to enter into the presence of God on our own standing, on our own good works. It would not go well for us. We need something. We need this God to come out and do something for us. This is the picture that David has in his mind. And so, as would be reasonable for all of us, he asks the logical question in verse 3. He asks the question, well, then who? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord and, and the holy place, they're both, again, pictures of the place where the presence of God dwells. The holy hill being Jerusalem. And the Holy of Holies, or the holy place, being that place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. Again, that, that holy place. So David is asking, who can enter into God's presence? Who can get back into Eden without being killed like Uzzah? 
And, and on a side note, this is, this is the great human question inside of all of your hearts. All of you have asked this question. How can you enter into perfection? Just yesterday, I, I, I play basketball on Saturday mornings, and I have a buddy who's a big Michigan State fan, so I, he's not a believer. And so I asked him, I said, man, what about that shooting at Michigan State the other day? And he was pretty shaken up about it. And so at that moment, I got to tell him, I said, Austin, look, man, this is, this is what is going on inside your heart. You instinctively recognize that this world is broken. You recognize that this world is not as it ought to be. And there's something inside of you that almost recognizes that, like, I feel like I was made for a world in which there was no pain, suffering, and sin, because you were. You were made for a relationship with your creator. And every single one of us, we know that we have sinned against our creator. I don't need to tell you what goes on in your head when you're, when you're laying down in bed. You, you know the depravity of your own heart. I know how wicked I am. I am a wicked man. And so this is the great human question. And so David gives us the answer to who. Who, who can stand in the presence of God? And he says in verse 4, he who has clean hands... That is someone who is holy in his actions and a pure heart. That is someone who has inward holiness, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, David's answer to me, it's in light of Super Bowl Sunday last week. His answer to me sounds a lot like John Madden, okay? You know who John Madden is? He's this old guy who just passed away a couple, day, or a couple of years ago, and, and, he, uh, and he would say the most, the most blatantly obvious things when he, was, when he was reporting on a game. He'd go, yeah, this team is down uh, 70 to nothing, and in order for them to win, they're going to have to score more points by the end of the game than the other team. And the guy he's working with is like, okay, thank you, John, uh, for stating the obvious there. We will uh, go back to you on the field. I feel like that's what David's doing right here. David's like, hey, guys, guys, I got it. The great human question, the great human problem is this. God is perfect. God is holy. You are not. And, and there's, you have this longing to be in there, but you can't do it. So I, I, I actually know a way. I know a way back into Eden. You want to know what it is? Here it is. All you have to do is be perfect. That's it. You just got to be perfect. You just got to be holy in every single action that you take. Just be holy in every single intent, heart intent that you have ever had. And you're looking around, you're going, yeah, David, what, like that's, that's not possible, man. That's absolutely not possible. Because this is not just the great human question. This is the great human conundrum that we desire to be in the presence of God, yet our sin keeps us from it and we cannot do it on our own. But if we keep on reading, David has someone else in mind. David starts talking about this king, this victorious king in verse seven. Look at it with me. David says, lift up your heads, O gates, And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? 
The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Now as cool of a poem as that is, I, I still am left asking the question, well, David, who is the king and why is he so victorious, right? The psalm doesn't exactly follow for me like God's this amazing creator. Who can enter into his presence? Nobody can. Well, I guess if you're perfect, you can. And then like, here's this song about a king. What's he getting at here? But again, I think, I think we're gonna find our answer in the passages that David himself is meditating on which is the opening passages of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. So that, that forces the question, is there a king in the first three chapters of Genesis? Is there a king in the first three chapters of Genesis? I think the answer is yes. The very first prophecy that we find in the entire Bible is found in Genesis 3.15. It's at the point where Adam and Eve, they had already denied their creator. They decided to do what was right in their own eyes. And so they took the fruit and then God found them out. They were, they were tricked. They were, they were tempted by the serpent and they gave in. And so God comes down and he starts sending his curses. And he starts with that great serpent, what represents all of evil here. And God looks at the serpent and he says this to him in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring he will crush your head and you will strike his heel now what this means is that one day there would be a human who would be perfect in all that he does he would have clean hands there would be a human who is perfect in all of his intentions he would have a pure heart And the curse of sin would strike his heel by killing him, but he will curse, crush rather, the curse of sin by rising from the dead. And then after defeating his enemy, he would be able to march up the hill of the Lord into the presence of God where he would sit down at the right hand of the Father and reign as your king. This is the king that David had in mind. And I don't, I don't want to spoil the whole story of the Bible here for you, but I'm about to. Genesis 3 and Psalm 24 are all about this guy named Jesus. They're all about this real human who lived 2,000 years ago. And when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he lived a perfect life, He went to the cross, he was killed on a cross to absorb all of the sins of humanity. And he rose three days later. And you know what happened when he rose from the dead? He crushed the head of sin. He crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated evil once and for all. And then after he did that, he ascended back up into heaven with his father, into the presence, into the holy of holies, where he, Jesus, was able to sit down 
at the right hand of the Father and rule as your king. And here's an here's a interesting historical side note. This psalm in Psalm 24 would have been sung by those who were working at the temple during Passover week. So if you remember the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem where everyone's singing, Hosanna, 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 and they're laying the palm branches and their coats down at the floor at the, on the ground of Jesus as he rode in, those in the temple would have been singing this psalm, this prophetic psalm into existence as Jesus rode into the temple or rode into the city of Jerusalem. I find that amazing. So you, you ask the question, who can stand in the holy presence of God? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who can. But here's what I love about this psalm. The psalm is a multifaceted picture, okay? It's like an image that you, that you look up and you go, who can stand in the presence of God? And you say, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus can stand in the presence of God. But it's one of those images that if you move it like this, there's another image. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what they're called. I'm from Sadel, so not quite sure. But that's what it is right there. And so when you, when you move it, you see a second image. And the second image is you get to stand in the holy presence of God because of what Jesus did. And, 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 and you're going to get a beautiful picture of this in Isaiah 6 of all places. So Isaiah, this prophet, he gets taken up into the presence of God through a vision. And he is tripping out, okay, he sees God high and lifted up. His, his, there's smoke everywhere. There's these angels flying around with six wings. Everything's shaking. And, and Isaiah realizes, I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I cannot be here. If I stay here any longer, I'm going to die. He realizes that. And so what happens is you get this very, very interesting picture in Isaiah 6, 6, and 7. Look at this. Isaiah says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs of the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now that is bizarre, but I want you to see the picture of what's going on here. Isaiah is unholy, just like us. He cannot stand in the presence of God on his own. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't try and clean himself up. Rather, the, the holiness of God is reaching out and it is being transferred over to him, washing away his sin, washing away his guilt. And guys, this is a picture of what Jesus did for us. Fast forward to Jesus in your head. When Jesus came to earth, and he started walking around on earth, he would, he would come into contact with people and they would be utterly transformed, physically and spiritually. He, he would go around and do things that would end up getting him killed, right? He would go around and he'd say, uh, hey, crippled man, you haven't been able to walk. Get up, walk, and your sin is forgiven. Your sin is atoned for. You see what Jesus was doing when he was walking around on earth? He was acting like that live coal in Isaiah 6. 
And John, the gospel writer, would say the exact same thing. In John 1.14, he says this about Jesus. He says, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, this is amazing, guys. That word dwelt literally means to set up a tent, to set up a tabernacle, to set up a holy place. Do you see what's going on here? John was saying that Jesus, when he came down to earth, he was a walking holy place. And this is where it impacts you because what he was offering everyone and what he's still offering you today is if you would just believe who I am, who I say I am, and what I came to do, I am going to reach out to you just like that holy coal. I am going to touch you and you are going to have your sins completely washed away, completely atoned for. Every single wrongdoing that you've ever done, God is saying, I can and will forgive you if you would believe in my son. And some of you in this room, you've never experienced that forgiveness before. And so with, th- with this in mind, just reread with me verses three through five in Psalm 24. David says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's the great human question and conundrum. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. The same prophet, Isaiah, who had the vision of the coal, would say later in Isaiah 61 that when you believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and his resurrection, when you believe that, the picture of this is that God actually takes this robe of Jesus' perfection and he wraps you in it. And he clothes you in Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, so that you are able to actually Enter into the holy place. Enter into the holiness of God without perishing and able to live with your creator. Essentially, Jesus is the one who unlocks the gates of Eden for you to be able to walk through. And, 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 and in the Bible, Romans 10, 13, the, the way you do this is so clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because if you do that, then Jesus' righteousness Jesus' blessing, Jesus' clean hands and his pure heart are being offered to you as a gift for all of eternity. And some of you need to do that today. And I'm asking you, even right now, would you do that in the quietness of your own heart? Just bow your heart and, and surrender this Jesus. Pray to him, ask him to forgive you of your sins. And if you're a Christian, this is what you need to meditate on, that this is your reality. Guys, Christians at New City Church, consider this. You have entered into the holy place of the living God because of what Jesus has done for you. You are a son or a daughter of the living king. You have been forgiven. Your guilt has been completely washed away. You have been set free from the bondage of your sin. You have been set free from the condemnation of your sin. And you have been set free from the future presence of your sin. 
And Christian, I know that there are some of you in here who are really, really hurting. And there's one thing that I just, I want you to leave today with the helmet of salvation on your head, knowing that there is not a thing in this world that the enemy can throw at you that your king has not already defeated. He's defeated it. And that is who you are. There is therefore now no, zero, none, absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you live like you believe that this week? And that actually leads to my last reality that I want to point out. One more image here. First image being who can stand in the presence of God. It's Jesus. You, you tilt it that's, this way. Who can stand in the presence of God? You because of Jesus. And then the third image is who can stand in the presence of God? You Actually, the third image is that you are God's holy place. You are the holy place of God on earth today if you're a Christian. I love this story of Moses going to Mount Sinai with the Israelites, if you remember it. And it's another picture of what we've been talking about. The presence of God comes down on on Mount Sinai and all the Israelites are like, I'm not going up there, right? Like that's scary, it's thundering, it's lightning, I'm not going up there. Moses goes up there. But do you remember what happened to Moses when he came down? His face was shining. It was radiating the holiness of God. The Israelites knew that Moses had been with God. And Christians in this room, listen to me. That is a picture of what every single one of you ought to look like. Your life here on earth ought to be a reflection of the holiness of God because you have seen the living God. You have gone into his presence and you should be radiating his holiness at your job, with your neighbors, with your family. And so the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing with that? When the world sees you, do they see themselves? Do they see the world? Or when they see you, do they they get a presence? Do they get a window into the presence of God? They see the radiance of the holiness of God radiating off your life. And this is a really big deal because I don't know if you realize this, but, but right now you are playing a role in God's universal plan, which he started all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, like we talked about. Fill, his goal is to fill the universe with his glory. And the way that he does this is by these little these little. Christians, these images of himself, these walking holy places, because that's what you are. Paul calls you a temple, the place where the spirit of God dwells. These little walking holy places coming together and starting churches, starting these little Jesus communities that that would be a holy place, that would be an Eden on earth in order that we would radiate the glory of our creator to the rest of the world in the context that we're in. And New City Church, that's, that's why you're in Ankeny. That's why you're here. To be that holy place in Ankeny. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you know that you yourselves, that is the church, New City Church, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst. Guys, this is, this is why we plant churches. This is why you guys planted a church. This is why you guys started Ballard Creek. So that they could be that that holy place, that 
that temple, that Eden in Huxley. And that's what you guys are here. And so this is why we are going to start an Eden on the north side of the Des Moines. Pun intended right there. That's why we named the church that. We want to be a holy place on the north side of Des Moines because we believe that Eden Church is called to the north side of Des Moines to help them find and follow their creator. We believe if Eden Church really loved their neighbors like Jesus did, that entire communities would change. Neighborhoods, schools, businesses. If we really loved the north side of Des Moines like Jesus did. We believe that if Eden Church really loved the neglected like Jesus did, then we would be a picture of the heart of our Savior. We would be a picture, someone who is gentle and lowly, filled with not just businessmen, but homeless men. Not just stay-at-home moms, but, but single moms. Filled with the family of God, a beautiful picture if we would just love the north side like Jesus. We believe that if Eden Church really loved the spiritual nomad, we would give people a place where they felt at home to search for their savior and we would be an answer to the spiritual cry of our culture today. And this morning, maybe God is calling some of you to take a step of faith. And for some of you, it's the first and most important step, and that is to place your faith in this Jesus that we've been talking about. And you just need to acknowledge your sin. You need to acknowledge that you are on the outside of the gates of Eden, and you want in, and you need to acknowledge that Jesus is your only way. Confess your sins. Take that step of faith today. But then some of you, maybe God is calling you to take that step of faith to join Eden Church to come alongside of us. Could joining Eden Church be a stepping stone to taking bigger risks with your faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love you and we thank you. Left to ourselves, we would be outside of the gates, wanting and desiring to get in with no way in. Lord, you have made a way it is through your son. It is through the cross. Lord, I pray that there, if there is someone here who does not know you, would you open their eyes to the love of Jesus and save them right now? Lord, lead the Christians right here today. Lord, we love you. In your son's name, amen.